0: These words from the epistle to the Ephesians. Spare no effort in maintaining the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Let us pray. Gracious God, we ask that through the written word and the spoken word, we may behold the living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, the subject of unity is a very difficult matter to address these days. It's a little ironic that while some astrophysicists believe that they are on the verge of discovering what they call a grand unified theory, which will perfectly describe, they say, all the physical mechanisms running the universe. that While they're doing that, so many human beings seem so bent on discovering what will it will take to disunify the world. It seems that every day there are new reasons for disagreement or conflict or division. Liberals versus progressive conservatives. Trump versus Biden. Russia versus Ukraine. Israelis versus Palestinians. We live in a polarized and a polarizing world. Now, we may imagine ourselves to be more civil in our disagreements in Canada than our neighbors to the south, but we also are sensitive to the complexity and elusiveness of unity. After a series of constitutional summits, national referendums and elections, with a strong separatist movement in Quebec, and an independence movement among indigenous peoples, and with a weekly gathering of freedom protesters at Queen's Park, many have difficulty describing just what it is which defines and holds us together as a country. And dissolution is more personal still when we look at fragmentation within our own neighborhoods and even our own families. It's an old statistic, but you all know, as uh, statisticians will tell us that 38% of marriages in Canada will end in divorce. Well, in fact, disunity can even describe a state of mind. After a hard conversation once in the Canadian House of Bishops about what the Church's policy was on excommunication, one bishop was heard to remark, I'm out of communion with myself half the time. Well, it is in this contemporary context of the deterioration of many of our most sacred institutions that we read these words from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one god and father of all who is above all and through all and in all now i think we would all agree that st paul's conviction is a splendid one and that it deserves to be chanted by all christians in actual fact scholars think that these words did form part of an ancient creed and we essentially essentially repeat it every time we say that we believe one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. But let me ask, what can we possibly think we mean when we say this? The church is, in reality, anything but united. To say that the church is one sounds like utopian idealism of the most fictitious kind. Can you guess how many denominations are represented by the current students at Wycliffe College? The list we compiled for our summer chapel intercessions is 43. From the A, that would be the African Methodist Episcopal Church, to W, the Wesleyan Church. Now, in its own fashion, this sheer number of denominations begs the question of what is meant by the unity of the church. What is it, if anything, that actually holds us together? Would it not be more true to say that we believe in many holy, Catholic, and apostolic churches? The apparent absurdity of a doctrine of the unity of the church in the face of the reality of a church always arguing and dividing caused the 18th century French atheist and satirist Voltaire to write this comment on the subject of the unity of the church. As God is one, the church is one. We cannot doubt of this when we consider the entire unity of dogmas, sentiments, and opinions that has ever existed in the midst of Christians from the very foundation of the Christian religion. This unity assuredly bears the impress of the finger of God. Voltaire's sarcasm is devastating. For his point is that the disunity of the church on matters of faith and practice may actually indicate that Christians worship different gods. Now, I regularly hear people say at weddings and funerals, which of course brings people together from outside of the church, that we all believe in the same God, don't we? But this opinion betrays a naive and sentimental view a kind of rainbow faith bubble that Voltaire's shrewd observation pricks. For how can the same God support the liberals and the conservatives and the NDP? How can the same God sanction both war and pacifism? How can the same God be on the side of the maskers and the anti-maskers, the abortion promoters and the abortion deniers, the maid promoters and the maid deniers. Maybe we ought to abandon the apparently unrealistic and perhaps even unhelpful notion of the church as a unity. Maybe disunity is actually to be preferred. Maybe we should just replace the phrase, Jesus is Lord, with live and let live. Well, while there is perhaps a certain human logic and even appeal to this, St. Paul would have us resist this temptation. For the Apostle Paul clearly taught, as the creeds have always affirmed, that just as there is one God, so there is one church. And just as God is incapable of being divided, so the church is actually indivisible. Now, true, in the eyes of the world, the church appears badly fragmented, but from God's point of view, it is still his one body. I'm trying to think of an image, how this can sort of come home to us, and in order to demonstrate how this can be the case, let us think of a human family. Is it possible for a family to be divided and yet remain a unity? Imagine a family, all of whom are united by marriage, united by love, by blood, and a certain shared history. But now imagine a circumstance where the children grow up in an environment of competition between themselves and conflict with their parents. And finally, they reach the point where they no longer want anything to do with their parents or their siblings. Indeed, they are so bitter and resentful that they move as far away from each other as possible. And in their independence, they never communicate with each other, and one or two even apply for a formal change of their surnames. And now the question is, do the children still belong to their original family? Genetically, of course, the answer is yes. And maybe even socially, if... Geographical proximity or a means of communication still exists. But for the ultimate proof, let's just see what happens if the parents die and stipulate in their will that their $8 million assets will be distributed equally among their children. Then you'll find out if the family still exists. And if you can't imagine such a thing, just watch the TV series Succession. Even so, it is possible for the church to exist in manifold denominational forms, in utter disharmony and mutual suspicion, in competition and conflict, and still to remain the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, of course, our imaginary family's wider relations are not very happy about the state of that family, and neither should we be pleased with the division which we see within Christ's body. Just as the parents would want their estranged children to become a visible family again, so we ought to long for the day when the invisible unity that we share in Christ with other Christians becomes a visible reality in the way that we share our lives and work together. Now you ask, is this a reasonable hope? Is there a practical course of action we can follow to enable this to come about? Well, the answer is that it's not easy, but St. Paul gives us a clue as to how we might go about it. Again, verses 1 to 3 from Ephesians 4. He says, lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. St. Paul's exhortation here is an admission that with all the variety and difference that exists in the church, there is bound to be some disagreement and contention. But these obstacles to visible unity can be overcome by the cultivation of five qualities. and They are humility, gentleness, patience, loving forbearance, and peaceful tolerance. What are these qualities like? Well, humility is an Attitude of lowliness. It's the opposite of what St. Paul elsewhere describes as selfish ambition. Eugene Peterson defines humility as, quote, a kind of submission of the will to the conditions at hand. And so it is that the humble Christian does not insist on having things done his or her own way, but regards every disagreement as an opportunity to learn and perhaps even to serve another. The next is gentleness. Gentleness, of course, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It has been called the meekness of the strong. And this is because, while Proverbs wisely says that a gentle answer turns away wrath, it also says that true gentleness is powerful. Proverbs 25.15 reads, A gentle tongue can break a bone. Indeed, it is this power clothed in humility that stands behind Jesus' own claim, I am gentle and humble in heart. He's not gentle, Jesus, meek and mild, but his gentleness is powerful. Well, patience is listed by Paul and patience is another fruit of the Spirit. It's sometimes translated long-suffering. And that's because it describes what we endure when we put up with those who aggravate us. It's another characteristic of Jesus. Saint Benedict observed that it is by patience that we share in the sufferings of Christ. Fourthly, you have loving forbearance. This is a particular expression of patience. It is a kind of putting up with and involves remaining firmly tolerant while under stress and provocation, and not giving in to the urge to uh, answer evil with evil. The ultimate goal of, of forbearance is in fact the welfare of the other. And even when they disappoint, or offend, or fail. Well then finally, and fifthly, peaceful tolerance. Peaceful tolerance consists of the ongoing work of repentance and reconciliation with God and with each other. The word carries with it a sense of urgency, even hastiness. It is something that's undertaken with extreme effort and with diligence. One notable illustration of this quality, I think, comes from correspondence between the great evangelist, George Whitfield and, and the founder of Methodism, John Wesley. Wesley and Whitfield were close friends, and both rose to prominence in the great evangelical revivals of the 18th century. But at one point, they fell out over matters of theology. Those of you that are interested in theology will know that Whitfield was a devout Calvinist and Wesley advocated Arminian doctrines. And when their quarrel became public, Whitfield wrote this to Wesley Why should we dispute when there is no possibility of convincing? Will it not in the end destroy brotherly love and insensibly take from us that cordial union and sweetness of soul? which I pray God may always subsist between us. How glad would the enemies of our Lord be to see us divided? How many would rejoice should I join and make a party against you? I pray to God that the more you judge me, the more I may love you and learn to desire no one's approbation or approval but that of my Lord and master Jesus Christ. Just a beautiful, beautiful example of peaceful toleration. Well, these are the things that make for unity. Humility, gentleness, patience, loving forbearance, and peaceful tolerance. Are these in any sense relevant to the small part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church gathered here at Christ the King this afternoon? I think so. For as with any congregation, there are things that would threaten to break down and destroy the unity that we share in Christ. These things, my friends, can be overcome if only we would learn to hum... humility and to restrain ourselves, and if we would replace our conflict with patience and tolerance and deep accord. And this we can do because, St. Paul says in the first verse, this is your calling. And indeed, it is the work of the Spirit to nurture these qualities within the Christian soul. For it is the Spirit's task to transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ, who is the perfect embodiment of all of these qualities. Each of these characteristics are to be found in him. He is their perfect example, and he gives them to those who ask. For just as Christ called us into this path of discipleship, so will he give us the means to lead a life worthy of his calling. This, my friends, is the secret to true unity. The unity that we have in Christ may be damaged or deformed by our arrogance, our hardness of heart, our impatience, our intolerance, and disagreeableness, but it cannot be destroyed. And neither can it be the product solely of our goodwill or ingenuity or winsomeness or the result of any human effort. If we are truly one in Christ, then we must look to Christ to embody that unity within us. As the great ecumenist and 20th century Belgian Archbishop Cardinal Sunens once said, I believe that the solution of ecumenical disunity will not finally be the result of a dialogue between the Church of Rome and the Church of Canterbury or the Church of Moscow, the three great uh, uh, movements in in Christianity of Roman Catholicism, Protestantism, and Orthodoxy. It will not be a dialogue, he said, between churches as such, but a dialogue between Rome and Jesus, Canterbury and Jesus, Moscow and Jesus, so that we can become more and more united in him. Well, this is a conclusion, speaking ecumenically, of the week of prayer, of, Christian, for, of prayer for Christian unity. May the good people of Christ the King draw closer to Christ and thus be given grace to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Amen.